before I forget. Uh, we do have a Google group for the Buddhist Studies class. It's actually several, I think now about 300 people, so a lot of people stay on the list, even though they may not be showing up on Monday night. And you can unsubscribe at any point. A few of you probably aren't on the list, so I have my laptop here. Or on the sign-in sheet, print neatly your email address. If you haven't been getting the Buddhist Studies emails, um, and I sent one to uh, maybe on Wednesday or Thursday, so if you didn't get one then, then you're not on the list. So, Carl, I need to get on the list, and then probably a few of you. So make sure you see me afterward, or print neatly next to your sign-in name. Your, and that means if you put your email address, but you're already on, cross that off before you leave. So... This makes less work for me. So we have this wonderful opportunity to look at samadhi this summer. And samadhi is something we could study for a long time and should study for a long time. It's really, and we do, we cycle through it in different of the courses. And... uh, I feel like a very devoted and grateful student of samadhi and a beginning student of samadhi. And it's different at different times. You know, one of the things about samadhi, this beautiful, balanced, clear, pleasant quality of mind, when the mind gathers, unifies in the present moment, is that there are times when that happens relatively easily and naturally. And what will arise in our mind, especially in the beginning, is, I finally got it. (laughs) I'm there. This is what I've been looking for. This is that proverbial good set. I'm so happy. And then conditions change, like we start getting attached to it, or for whatever reason, things are different. And then it's not, that same experience isn't accessible. And it, it's very easy to judge ourselves. This is the bad sit I didn't want to have. I'm no good. I used to be good at meditation, but maybe I wasn't actually good at Maybe those nice sits didn't really happen to me. And it's very easy to spiral down. There's a lot of judgment, generally in the Buddhist world, and specifically in our minds, around samadhi or concentration. It's like how all of that competitive meritocracy conditioning we have, this is how it plays out in the meditation Buddhist community. You know, who's got samadhi? Do you have more samadhi than me? Less samadhi? (laughs) You know, and I'm not going to let you guys know. You know, I'll pretend. (laughs) I really, it can get very neurotic. And even if you're not interacting with another community, even within your own mind, it can get uh, trigger grasping and judgment and feelings of betrayal and disappointment. And samadhi, like everything else in the conditioned world, it comes and goes according lawfully according to causes and conditions. And when the conditions are there for it, it can't be stopped. It will arise to the degree that the supporting conditions are there. 
And when the supporting conditions aren't there for samadhi, there's nothing anybody can do until, unless they can bring the supporting conditions in. You can't will it to happen. Wanting to have a concentrated, peaceful mind isn't the cause, isn't one of the supporting causes for having a peaceful, still, gathered, collected mind. So we learn a lot, uh, taking up this theme, we learn a lot. Like, you want to have a nice garden, or you want to have a nice relationship with another human being, or you want to be successful in any aspect of life. Working with the mind around this, you know, the development of samadhi, it teaches us, like, oh, okay, if we want to make anything happen, we have to understand it as a conditional phenomenon. And understand that what we see on the surface may not be actually the determining causes and conditions for that particular thing to arise. We have to, the mind has to see the full spectrum from what's affecting, influencing things in a subtle way, as well as the more obvious gross forces that are at play. This is the study of karma. And so we begin our study of samadhi by looking at effort. And really, the way we make effort in the world, all the little and big ways we make effort in the world, is a perfect expression of how much we know about karma in that moment, the law of karma. Like, you don't want to make effort. That says something about the mind's view about karma in that moment. Like, what arises from intentional actions? Or intentional actions relevant? Or am I basically screwed by external forces and there's nothing I can really do about it? So my intentional actions are relatively unimportant. So we, you know, either give up or, you know feel okay about investing in distraction or all kinds of different strategies when we have that view of karma, like my actions, the way my mind is participating, the way my mind is applying itself to the moment, like what it's doing, does it really matter? That's one understanding we have at times about karma. Another sort of opposite view or at the other end of the spectrum view is we have this idea that I should be able to make anything happen. You know, and if it if things aren't happening the way I would like them to happen, it's just I I haven't applied my mind correctly. As if I could I I should be able to really control things, govern how things unfold, as if we hold all the cards, <clears throat> all the different forces that are at play are in our hands. I remember Joseph Goldstein, um, one of my important teachers, saying that uh, he could describe his whole, now over 40 years of practice, I think he started in around 67, so even more than 40 years, 
that he could describe his whole course of practice as a deepening understanding of right effort. Like, what is right effort? And that's nice because it, it tells us that we don't have to make right effort, which is, you know, like a sure way to be making wrong effort, this, this idea that we have to be making right effort. But we'll learn from effort. A little bit like I was trying to guide us tonight during the meditation that if we just get interested in the kind of effort the mind is making, and, and the underlying assumption is the mind is always applying itself. There's really no way to not make effort. Like, to not want to make effort is a kind of efforting. Like, giving up, in a sense, is a kind of effort. So the mind is always, you know, as long as we're alive, and maybe even when the body's gone, who knows, but certainly as long as there is this life force, the mind is acting. And that action has consequences. And, you know, one of the consequences is that the mind's action leads to the body acting. And we speak something or we do something with our body. But even if we're not, we're sitting perfectly still and keeping quiet, the mind's action sets things in motion. The mind can't do anything, and it's always doing something, without that's something affecting what happens next. This moment, this is what we mean, this is what the Buddha taught around dependent origination or the interdependent conditional unfolding of all things, that this arising, my experience right now, is arising completely out of what was before which includes the mind, what the mind was doing, how the mind was knowing, how the mind was relating. So this, in part, is an expression of what the mind was doing the previous moment. Sometimes we can really see that clearly. But a lot of times we're we're negligent. We don't want to see that because we don't really, we're more comfortable feeling like... uh, You know, it's funny, we like to swing between the two ends where we feel like I'm making things happen and more than just what my mind's doing, but like my actions, my intentions, like what I intend. But we're not looking at a more, it's sort of on a gross level where we're feeling a bit like I'm the master of the universe, throwing our weight around, using willpower, and imagining that you know, that's making things happen the way they're happening. And we can, you know, it's very easy for us to manipulate the truth, to basically lie to ourselves so that it it seems that way. Like, you know, we could have an egocentric view. I could have an egocentric view that uh, through the, you know, charismatic teaching and, and, uh, skillful operation of the center, I've made you all come tonight, or something like that. But you see what a gross denial that is of so many forces. When we think about all the little and big forces that actually got us here tonight, you know, that, and so we have that thought, a thought like that, you know, about our 
partners, our friends, our, you know, like it, the world revolves around my actions. So that's one end. And then we, so we gravitate from there to feeling helpless, like the world's being dumped on us, happening to us. Nothing we can do about it. So this is the, the real balance where we want to appreciate how we are participating, how the mind is participating in the moment. Just be really discerning about that. And not sliding into helplessness, but not sliding into any kind of inflation. In the Buddhist cosmology, some of you know there's the warring God realm. And uh, you can think about it as like, uh, you know, kids or adults acting as kids. I did this once with my brother, um, with my brothers and my dad. I think that's all. Oh, and brothers-in-laws. That's um, sort of a bachelor party for one of my brothers. We went and did the paintball or flat, what is it called? Paintball thing. You know, and there's something about having a gun that shoots and that leaves a mark. That's, you know, it's like a warring God. It's like, and you want to sort of want to, immediately you want to demonstrate power. And so we can, you know, fall into that realm. But we want to be more nuanced. Like, it's very important to be able to see all the powerful forces that, and impersonal forces that are making this moment the way that it is. Without sliding into helplessness. Because how I'm understanding it really affects how it's being experienced. So there is a place to affect the unfolding, but it really revolves around understanding. And this really teaches us a lot about effort. You know, instead of uh, giving up the effort to give up, to be helpless, or the effort to feel like we should be in control and things should bend to our will, to our desires, we have this more discerning, nuanced understanding that the world is largely an unfolding of many, many impersonal forces. And many of them are internal. So I'm not even just talking about external, but to begin to understand our personality and the different patterns, psychological patterns, as just various impersonal forces like weather that moves around in different ways depending on so many other causes and conditions. And there's one thing which we can call wisdom. And this wisdom is mirror-like. So it's reflecting many things, and in particular reflecting how the mind is understanding the experience of many different forces playing together. In interacting, interdependent. And wisdom is reflecting that, and it's reflecting that how I'm understanding that play of interdependent forces. And that's where we want to apply effort, is understanding what's at play 
and understanding how important it is, like how the mind holds that, that that, that I like want to say pivot place, pivot point, is where we want to learn to apply effort. First in remembering, so bringing into view the play of causes and conditions. Like what's at play in the body? What's at play in the mind? What's at play around us? So at any degree of uh, focus, you know, it could be a very refined, subtle focus or very big focus like a bunch of people gathering at Common Ground Meditation Center or when you're talking in your small groups next Monday. We're aware at what's at play. And then in particular, we're remembering that part of what's at play is what my mind is making up about this or how my mind is understanding this or how my mind is relating to this. That's not a given. We tend to see that as a given, like um, when we're frustrated or when we're disturbed, that that's not a choice the mind's making in the moment. But it is a choice how we're relating. If we're bored right now, if we are identified with the boredom, then there's no choice. You know, we often hear this from some of our teachers, you know, mindfulness being mindful in a moment means there's a choice. Not being mindful means there's no choice. If we're mindful, we see how the mind is relating and we see that that way of relating is renewed moment by moment by moment. It's not set. Like if I'm bored, doesn't mean I have to be more bored in the next moment. I could be very interested in the experience of being bored. That's different than being bored. I could see the impersonal nature of boredom. That's different than being bored. Or the changing nature of boredom. Or I could see the compassion for the unpleasantness of the boredom. So there are many ways in that next moment. And it this is where the effort and actually, it's not even so much trying to be skillful as it is of really connecting, remembering to really connect with the lawful, interdependent unfolding. Because you could say, I think it's a nice definition for effort. <clears throat> the cause, the proximate cause for effort is recognizing that there's something to be done. Now, this is true on a very gross level. I walk home, and there are ants in our sink, in our kitchen sink. And, uh, you know, it's <laughs> an inside joke between Casey and me. I just, I realized I was saying that this might have effect in your mind, Casey. <laughs> anyway, there are ants in our sink. And it's like, there's something to do. And... Uh, and so it's relatively easy to do something about it. In fact, it just flows from the experience of seeing that there's something to do. And part of seeing that there's something to do is sort of recognizing that I'm the person to do it or I'm not the person to do it. So if we really want to do something, it's more about seeing that there's something to do than it is about making ourselves do something. And this is really important because, you know, for us to really understand effort, we have to understand it in this relative 
place of I'm a person who has to make choices and act in the world. But even though we understand it in that relative level, we have to be, it has to make sense from this, what we call right view, that it's just nature, so that the effort is a natural, it doesn't require a self to clean the ants out of the sink or do the next thing. That it, So we have to understand it as a lawful, causal unfolding. So what allows the body and mind to make effort, what we call effort, to do things, to apply itself? And this is something we can study. Like, how did we get through the day? How did we make the effort to come here tonight? Or all the things. I mean, just look at civilization. I mean, it's amazing what's been done. And actually, a very short time. I mean, the world was pretty much untouched to a large degree 500 years ago by human civilization. I mean, there were places, obviously, that were affected. But, you know, a lot of the world was relatively sort of not despoiled by our activity. And now it's quite different. When you fly, you see, you know, how much. So it's like a lot of work. And so where did that come from? It's like uh, they always make jokes about the, uh, what is it, Corps of Engineers? U.S. Corps of Engineers? Army Corps of Engineers? You know, it's like they can't help but when they see a river to, you know, imagine a bridge or a levee or a dam or a, and we have those kind of eyes. It's like we see a woods and we want to manicure it and get rid of this or add that to it. And we have to, you know, we see, I, I at least, we have these critical minds or greedy minds. It could be either way, where we want to fix things. So a lot of our effort comes from that greed and aversion. You know, we're seen in that way. And then that, and so the question is, how do we transform that kind of effort coming out of greed and aversion to an effort that's coming from a different place, a non-stressful place? So it's really a movement of nature where the mind is clearly seeing what needs to be done and then doing it without there being a projection of a self who doesn't like it, thinks it could be better, but a more organic and natural movement. And I bet everybody in this room has had experiences like this, um, maybe when, not all the time, but maybe at times when you were raising your children or when you were a lot of times the reason people volunteer or do service work is that it can be really joyful to sort of give themselves to something that they feel good about. I mean, I can remember more than a handful of times of really powerful joy, just, but we're just working, but working with a group of people in a way that was really enlivening. And the effort just sort of flows out of us. We just keep doing what's next. And then before long, it's the end of the day. And we have a good sleep usually and days like that. So what makes that happen? I mentioned on Sunday, I, Krista Tippett's program uh, on being, that public radio program, she interviewed Stuart Brown, who's evidently a well-known researcher in the area of play, human play. Really interesting program. And uh, not only studying... Uh, this, uh, when people have a lot of rough and tumble play in their own life, how 
it uh, predicts, you know, more healthy life, psychological life, but also other species and the importance of play in other species. And, uh, you know, play is often a lot of work, you know, from one perspective, building all those sandcastles or, you know, all the fantasy games or all the different things that kids and adults do. Even those of you who go play tennis or swim laps. And I mean, there's a lot of, hopefully it's play, you know, that a lot of work that gets done, but it doesn't feel stressful. We feel grateful to be able to do that. And so it's really, it'll be really interesting for us over these six weeks to take a fresh look at effort or the application of mind to what's at hand, both in the formal sitting practice, we can do that in a more microscopic way, but also through the day. Like how do we get from the car to the office, that effort? Where does it come from? Is it stressful or is that effort enlivening for the mind and body. You know, when you go home and get ready for bed, brush your teeth or do whatever you do, is that kind of effort stressful or deadening or heavy in some way? Or is it enlivening? Can effort, this application of the mind to whatever's next to doing, can that be enlivening? Or is some of it inevitably going to be, has to be stressful? Maybe I'll share uh, one of the suttas. I, I put a few things up on our webpage already. And um, there's uh, one is from Ajahn Tanisaro's book, Wings to Awakening, that we've used off and on in the Buddhist study series. An amazing collection of his commentary on the Buddha's teachings and then the suttas to back up his comments organized around what's called in the tradition the Wings to Awakening. I think it's 35. I forget exactly, but it's a number of different lists. The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Faculties, the Five Powers, the Four Indriyas, Seven Factors of Awakening, the Five Hindrances. So I think when you add that up, it's 35 or somewhere around that. And they're called the Wings to Awakening. And these are overlapping models, and a lot of the Buddhist studies classes are based on these different lists. So in that, uh, I took the section out on the four exertions, which is uh, the Buddhist teachings on energy or effort. So that's there. And then I have uh, a section, a couple sections from Ajahn Tiriodamo's book. He's one of the senior monks in the Ajahn Chah Western lineage. And he has a book on the seven factors of awakening, so three of those factors of awakening are the components of samadhi, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration together makes up this section of the Eightfold Path, this path the Buddha taught called samadhi. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, they work together. So there's that chapter there. 
And there's something else that I'm forgetting that I put up there as well. So I'll mention two things and then open it up for discussion. Um, one is just from the Satipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha is talking about mindfulness, because I think it's really useful to understand the three kinds of efforts that the Buddha uses in talking about mindfulness, seeing that it's such a central practice for us. Helene, would you turn on the top two lights about halfway? So this is right at the beginning of the Buddha's talk on the four foundations of mindfulness or the ways of establishing mindfulness. And then it gets repeated, I think, 13 times. So basically, each time the Buddha describes another meditation technique in this discourse, then he reminds us the gross way of making effort, the medium subtle way of making effort, and then the most subtle way of making effort. So first I'll read the... uh, the sutta itself, and then I'll give some comments about that. So you can just bring to mind one of the techniques, like mindfulness of breathing. So you just got the instructions for mindfulness of breathing, and then the Buddha adds this. In this way, one remains focused internally on the breath in and of themselves, or externally on the breath in and of themselves, or both internally and externally on the breath, or the body, or walking, or hearing, or feeling tone, or mental qualities, right? So it could be any object of meditation. The first step is to be able to see it in and of itself, whether it's an internal experience or an external experience. But we're not seeing it conceptually, not the idea of the breath, but the breath in and of itself. So that tells us a little bit about the kind of effort that we might want to unleash, uncover. So the unnatural intention or a natural inclination of the mind to go beyond the conceptual idea, oh yeah, the breath's coming in, oh yeah, the breath's going out, to the breath in and of itself going in, breath in and of itself going out. And I like to think of this as like the mind, the heart, is already inclined to do this. That doesn't mean there isn't a crust that we have to break through because of habit. You know, we're really trusting of our thoughts about things. We feel very familiar in the world of our ideas and our judgments and our evaluations. And so it's not so easy It feels either boring or scary to go into the world of things in and of themselves, walking in and of itself, the unpleasantness of some emotion in and of itself, or the pleasantness of some emotion in and of itself. And even thinking in and of itself, thinking as thinking, not not sort of getting uh, fooled by the picture the concepts or the thoughts create. But just say, oh, that's just thought. It's just thoughting, thought activity. It's not, like when I think of, I'm at Common Ground on Monday night, it feels true or solid or real. But actually, those are just thoughts. I'm at Common Ground on Monday night. 
right? It's just that mental activity. That's seeing it in and of itself. So that's the first interest, uh, first effort to get interested in. Like, and to, just to notice the mind can get into this. Because in a way, it's inherently engaging to see the world on that level, in and of itself. Even though we might have to break through some crust, it may not be our habit, but we can get in the habit of doing that. And then when we're in that habit, I've seen things in and of themselves. And the second instruction the Buddha gives, it just continues in this paragraph, or one remains focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to whatever we're paying attention to or the phenomena of passing away. So if we're like looking at the breath or looking at happiness in the mind or unhappiness in the mind or pain in the knee, or pleasantness in the body. Now that we're able to observe it in and of itself, the mind not confused by its thoughts about what's being seen or known. So it has has the stability of attention to just be with that. Then it can see how it comes and goes and what affects the coming and going. And see, understanding how things come and go is essential because the whole path of awakening depends on being able to see how suffering comes and goes. So when we practice seeing how breath comes and goes, how pain in the body comes and goes, how thoughts come and go, how everything comes and goes, that it's lawful, that it's dependent on conditions to come and go, that things come and go conditionally. When supporting conditions are there, things arise. When they're not there, they go away. So we're really, this is, seeing things as they are allows us to make the effort to discern how things come and go. Until we're at that level, we can imagine with our conceptualizing, our thinking, how things come and go. But that's sort of philosophy and theory And it's not directly seen. Some theories are relatively good. Some theories are relatively bad. But it's a different ballgame when we really see how doubt arises in the mind or how doubt can cease in the mind or how the shoulders get tight, get up toward the ears and how the shoulders release. Like even something that simple, how is it that, you know, what is the exact causal relationship for the body that's holding a lot of tension to do this. Now, we should, hopefully, because most of us have been practicing for a while, we should immediately know the answer. What is the proximate cause for this, for that release of physical tension, whether you're holding it in your jaw or your belly or wherever you might be holding it? What's the proximate cause when you release? Yeah, noticing seeing that and seeing it not in a judgmental way but seeing that the mind because that tension has to be recreated moment by moment or reestablished reinforced moment by moment and so it just means like seeing it as it is which means it's not functional it's not really serving any purpose and it causes pain so that's seeing that not thinking that but seeing that is the cause for the release of it 
The mind simply has to see it. So then the third effort, so that's the second. First is just to see things in and of them, in and of the way they are. Second is to see the arising and passing, how things unfold, how the causal conditional unfolding is happening. What's at play? And how can I participate? This is the important piece. How can this mind and the way it applies itself, the kinds of intentions that it acts on, how can it participate and how things are unfolding? How the breath is unfolding? So even on the level of breath, when we're doing mindfulness of breathing, even though we often hear the instructions, or oh, just let the breath come and go, that's a preliminary instruction to help break through the crust of controlling everything we pay attention to. But then once we've broken through that crust and we're being mindful of the breath, naturally we'll see how the mind is relating to the breath affects the breath, affects how the whole practice unfolds, the concentration practice unfolds. So we want to be very skillful, very um, engaged in how we're relating to the breath so that the samadhi, the kind of coming together of the mind, the unifying of the mind, the tranquilizing of the mind unfolds. Why wouldn't we want that to happen? We don't need to be afraid of that happening. In the same way, we don't want the mind to get all tight and bound up. So it's like we're driving a car and the, the one sort of thing we're controlling is you know, how the mind is relating to the meditation object. And either it's relating to it in a way that's messing things up or it's relating to the meditation object in a way that's helping things get clear and relaxed. And then that, making that effort will teach the mind an even more subtle effort. And this is the way the Buddha describes it. Or one's mindfulness that there are these, or there is this breath, there is this feeling, there is this whatever the meditation object is, is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And one remains independent, unsustained by not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner remains focused on the four frames of reference in and of themselves, or any aspect of our experience in and of themselves. So the last is, it's a, a kind of trust. So we're maintaining the effort is basically the effort of non-intervention. That there's an even more, like no matter how skillful we have become at supporting the arising of really calm, steady, clear states of mind with whatever meditation object, whatever experience we're being aware of, then the mind begins to discern that there's an even more profound peace that comes from leaving everything alone or letting everything happen on its own. So it's like maybe still there knowing the breath coming in, breath going out. But now instead of this subtle trying to relate to the breath in a way that helps to support samadhi, it's finding a more profound release and just leaving everything alone. Just let the breath come and go. Not taking it personally. But not 
not taking it personally doesn't mean we don't that there's not an intimacy. Actually, even taking it personally in a very subtle way, like really wanting this mind-body experience, the mindfulness of the breath experience, to be really beautiful. But that engagement, that relatively wholesome engagement, to really want this to unfold in a beautiful way, keeps it from unfolding in the most beautiful way. But it's actually not easy to see until you get pretty good at developing that relationship where you're relating to the breath in a very beautiful way. You're still operating as somebody who wants to relate in a very beautiful way. But that itself, that settling into that very beautiful way, allows the mind to see something that's even more subtle. That being dependent on this unfolding in a really beautiful way is itself stressful. It feels nice to put it down. So you can put that down too. And that's the third kind of effort the Buddha talks about for all the objects of meditation, the full, you know, he calls them the four foundations, but they're really 13 practices. There's a lot of practices in this collection. So you could think, and with any object of experience that I'm being mindful of, I can see it, I can make the effort to see it in and of itself, to break through the concept, the uh, the affecting or the uh, the influence of concept on the knowing of the object. And then, with that steadiness, then I can observe how things come and go, how peace in the mind comes and goes, depending on how the mind is relating. And I get good at that, and I can notice how the mind, as the, he says here, not clinging to anything in the world, unsustained by... So here we say that there's activity of mind and there's mind. And in the mind, let's say capital M mind, and the activity of the mind, in a sense, they're together because it's the mind that's knowing the activity of the moment. But the mind or the heart isn't affected, isn't clinging. So it's liberated. We call this the unconditioned. The condition is all the activity of the senses. Thinking, seeing, hearing, smelling, sensations. That's the activity, and right now, the mind is caught up in the activity. It likes some activity, it doesn't like, so the mind is entangled. It's clinging or grasping the unfolding of conditions of experience. And there's a way to realize the mind or the heart independent of nature that's unfolding. And that's what we call the awakening process. And it's really a matter of making these three efforts from gross, seeing things. This is just some basic moment of mindfulness, seeing things as they are, not overly affected by our ideas or concepts. Any ideas or concepts that are operating the mind are directing the attention toward things as they are. So like, Mark, it's just the breath. Right? That thought might be useful. You know, it's just the breath coming in. It's like this. But a thought like, why is my breath so erratic, may not be a useful thought. Right? That concept, my mind might get caught by. And then I'm less connected, less mindful. So I'll leave it here. I'll share the... Well, next week we'll also talk about effort. And then we'll take a couple of weeks talking about the teachings on mindfulness 
and then a couple of weeks talking about the teachings on concentration. So samadhi means concentration, so there are three parts. The third part is samadhi, and the whole category is called samadhi. So it's a, it can be confusing if you don't know that. And this is just part of the Eightfold Path. So we have the wisdom part of the Eightfold Path that we haven't studied yet. Last course, we studied the sila part, ethical conduct, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood. And now we're studying the purification of the mind. So the, what we did in the spring was really about the purification of action, external action. Now we're really talking about the purification of the mind. <coughs> so mostly when we talk about effort, this six-week class, we're going to be talking about this effort, this uh, how we're relating to experience, that particular effort, as opposed to our more gross efforts in the world. But your own reflections, both in the sit tonight, which you learned about observing effort, questions or comments about what I've said, or from your own experience with effort, what comes to mind? Yeah, very bad. Well, I would keep it an open question. It's like, uh, you know, what, like it's always nice to have a question prepared to ask. So, so you notice that the, it's feeling really good. There's a lot of tranquility. The body feels sort of <clears throat> held. You know, sometimes when the concentration is good, energetically the body is just like, you can almost use the word solid. It feels really there, even though it's not tight there, but it's just like, and the mind is settled and there's a, often a nice feeling. And then the question might be, um, what kind of effort is needed now? What kind of effort would be useful now? You know, you could ask that sort of question. Is any effort needed? Because it might be like the effort that's needed is just to know just to keep remembering that it's like this. You know, that the mind state is wholesome and like this. Like the Buddha has this image of a cow herder. You probably have heard me share this sutta because it's, it's a fun sutta. But a cow herder, during the growing season when the crops are coming up, he has to be really, or she has to be really careful to keep the cows on the thin path and off the fields because the cows would trample the crops and the farmer would get angry. But after the crops have been harvested, the cow herder can just sit under the shade tree and just know the cows are out there in the pasture eating and pooping, and nobody's going to be mad. They're going to actually be happy that the cows are out there eating whatever's left. So that's the image the Buddha has. Like When the mind is abiding in wholesome states, the kind of effort is different than when you have a lot of, like a lot of negative patterns in your mind have been triggered because somebody is making a lot of noise next to you and you're really bothered by the teacher and you're feeling like you shouldn't have come on the retreat and you know so there's a lot going on and a lot of agitation and aversion and doubt and confusion and then you want to be really vigilant like oh yeah that's that's just confusion and maybe really vigilant about bringing forgiveness in or patience in remembering that that's a possibility. So all basically, 
like all of your skillful means you've learned over the years, you're sort of, they're activated, they're there, and you're just using whatever keeps the mind from spinning out of control because it hurts when the mind spins out of control and you don't, and it's hard to bring it back into balance once you've let it, once the cows are let into the field. It's much easier to make the effort, even if it's intense, to keep the cows on the path because it's even more difficult to take care of the problem when you've spaced out for five minutes and they're all over the place. You don't even know where they are. Then it's much more work. So there are times in life and in meditation practice when a very intense effort is really the appropriate effort. And there are times in, in practice and in life when the effort is recognizing how little effort is needed, remembering how little effort is needed. So there's just a general sense that, yep, things are really good right now, and leave it alone. But that may not always be that way. Yeah, Corey. Yeah. Well, it has sort of an ultimate development and it's fine to use that word, but it's, you know, there is a process of developing samadhi. And so the word, I like the the translation, just the steadiness of mind. And when that steadiness gets really refined, you know, we talk about sometimes there's the phrase axis concentration. And that's sort of the the definition, technical definition of that is the agitating forces, the hindrances have receded. So they're not actively distorting the mind. Greed isn't distorting the mind. Aversion isn't distorting the mind. So that's axis concentration. And then that sets up a deeper deeper absorptions where the mind is really turning in on itself and it's disconnecting uh, from sense experience. It's, and in the deeper stages of that absorption, which... The, you know, you'd call the pinnacle of right samadhi would be what's called the fourth jhana, then the mind is so retreated from sense experience that even the concept or the experience of pleasant and unpleasant is no longer relevant. So it, there's, in the mind, and you even get a taste, even before the full absorption, when you're in that really still place, notice that the stillness isn't pleasant. It isn't pleasant, but it's really deeply satisfying. But it isn't pleasant. And part of the reason it's so pleasant is the mind, you know, one of the most subtle and pervasive condition, conditions of the mind is to like pleasant. But if it gets to this very quiet place, it's liberated from this duality of pleasant and unpleasant. It has some space from it. Now, in samadhi practice, that's temporary. It's arising because the mind has retreated from sense experience. Where wisdom, like insight, that liberation from pleasant and unpleasant is because the mind knows it isn't personal. So there's two ways to experience liberation. A really, really good set, 
where the mind retreats and then you get temporary liberation from desire, from craving, because the mind has removed itself from all the things that trigger craving in the mind, even the most subtle kind of craving. And there's a very powerful peace. It's, uh, I mean, we can, even with ordinary, ordinarily good sits, you get a flavor of it. And then you just have to keep an open mind how much that peaceful feeling can develop. And, uh, and then the other way is when you have an insight and you really see that something is impersonal, then the heart just lets go of its personal attachment to whether it this, goes this way or this way. So it's liberated. It doesn't matter if you like me or don't like me. It doesn't matter if it's a little warm in the room or a little cool in the room. It may be, in a sense, pleasant or unpleasant, but there, that pleasantness or unpleasantness isn't landing anywhere. Nobody, no part of the mind is claiming it as happening to me. That's liberation through wisdom versus samadhi. So it's, yeah, I think technically speaking, it's important to understand the full fruit of samadhi as that powerful temporary liberation from craving. The mind is so retreated from sense experience that it is experiencing temporary liberation. And then whatever the causes were that allowed the mind to become that quiet, they fall away eventually. And then the mind then begins to experience sense contact and begins to react to it as it's been conditioned to. But it, that peaceful feeling will remain and in a way provides a little immunity until it no longer remains. It slowly, slowly fades. So if you have a really good retreat, like some of you just came back from a nine-day retreat, and let's say you had a lot of samadhi, then it may be lingering for days after that. Or even longer, depending on how still the mind became. We have time maybe for one more comment, if there's anything else that... Seemed, yeah, Nora. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, I know, I should be more careful. Good in the sense that on a condition, on the sort of relative level, we like it because it's pleasant. So I should have said pleasant set. Yeah. Because like what Nora is pointing to is we can, and maybe even we often learn more in the difficult sets than the pleasant sets. But it's totally appropriate to make effort to have pleasant sets because making that appropriate effort to have a pleasant sit, a pleasant sit in the sense of uh, uh, samadhi, not like you're having a pleasant fantasy of like, oh, I've always wanted to be with that person or I always wanted to, you know, have that cabin. or, But like the, the pleasantness of that retreating, that seclusion, is that that kind of seclusion makes the mind much more sensitive because it's so withdrawn and so peaceful that as it emerges from that quiet, the mind is much more sensitive to greed, anger, and delusion. So it's much easier to, to have insight. And the insight is happening at a deeper level. So, And the Buddha was very clear about this. Cultivating that kind of quiet is a pleasant, a pleasant experience we don't need to be afraid of. And even if there is some attachment that develops 
to the deeper states of concentration or even the beginning states of concentration, it's okay because developing it will tease out the attachment because attachment won't allow it to develop. So if you really like it and you really want it to develop, eventually, unless you're really dense, eventually you'll see that wanting it to happen isn't going to help. And you start to relax a little bit more and trust. Like, this is a lawful unfolding. If I master the causes and conditions that lead to this happening, it will happen. If I just spend my time wanting it to happen, I'll just get frustrated. And some of us can get frustrated for a long time (laughs) because it's very seductive to think, it should be coming. I've been working so hard. It's not fair. This person looks so serene. Why not me? It is so easy to feel bad, badly about ourselves or to compare ourselves or to get frustrated for any number of reasons. But if we just keep uh, coming back to being mindful instead of just spinning in those self-dramas, it will all get teased out. That's the thing we need to remember. Just see if you can be mindful. Whatever drama you've created, can you be mindful of it? Because that's the way out, not thinking our way out. Yeah, it has to be quick, Alexis. Yeah, starting fresh is a way to kind of liberate the mind from bringing a lot of baggage because we have baggage around the practice, like I've been saying with that comparing mind. So it allows us to start fresh. And and we'll talk about this more next week. But you can go to your own favorite sources. It is, just as a contrast to what Alexis just said, it is important to have right information. So like there are ways that work to help collect the energy of the mind. So it's useful to bring that information up, not to worry about it, but to, like I was saying, to apply the mind, like the instructions I gave, okay, seeing things in and of themselves. So like, so what does that mean with mindfulness of breathing? And just to uh, really give ourselves to that activity and not let the mind do other activities. Because this is the activity I trust. So right now, this is what I'll do. So everybody in this, this could be part of our homework this week. Everybody should find 
some way that in your basic sit, you're going to be like the mind knows the work that it's been assigned. And the way you'll know that is that when you sit down, assign your mind the work it's supposed to do. Articulate it out loud in your mind. So you know, and it can, I'm not telling you what to tell your mind to do, but just clarify what it is you expect your mind to do. Because remember, even if you're just out telling your mind, don't do anything, that's the work you're telling your mind to do. So just be very conscious, very awake to what you're asking the mind to do. And then if you start to doubt that, notice the effect of that. Like, why am I doubting? Is this the time to question the work that I've assigned the mind? Maybe I should just keep doing it, and then after this sits over, I can assess whether I gave it the correct instructions. And feel free ahead of the time, before you sit tomorrow, you know, to pull out your favorite teacher's writing or talk and kind of clarify, okay, what instructions am I going to give the mind? What am I asking it to do for this 30 minutes or hour? It's a few minutes after we need to end here. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough time to take a breath or two together. Remembering that the topic of samadhi can bring up a lot of judgment, comparing minds. So just be on the lookout for that with a, a loving, forgiving heart. And we'll see most of each other next Monday night. And remember, if you put your email down but you're already getting emails, cross it off. If you aren't getting emails from me on Wednesday or Thursday when I sent it, either come up here or just write it on the sign-up sheet outside. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.